1: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi everyone, this is Amy. We here at Clever are taking some time to bake you up a batch of exciting new episodes. They'll be out of the oven and ready for your consumption in September. In the meantime, please enjoy one of our favorite episodes from the recent past. Definitely nutritious enough for a second listen, or if you missed it the first time, this is the universe telling you you need to hear it to feed your inspiration. So here you go. And as always, thanks for listening. We love you.
0: I don't lead with my ego, and I don't expect anyone else to do that either. I think it's about being creative and being in a community where we're working, and it should be fun.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to interior designer Kara Mann. A self described punk rock classicist, Kara Mann's spaces are a study in edgy refinement and a sort of tough sensuality that is both hyper cool and very welcoming. She grew up in Chicago and studied art at Tulane before getting her start as a fashion stylist. Now, a little more than 15 years into running her own studio, she's racked up clients like Virgil Abloh, Goop, and several luxury hotels. She's also just launched a furniture collection with CB2 and a line of home essentials called Kept. The Wall Street Journal calls her a spark plug in the world of design. I like it. Let's hear from Kara.
0: My name is Kara Mann. I live in Chicago, Illinois, and I am an interior designer. And I do it because I love it.
1: That's the only way you're going to be able to put love into the spaces that you make for other people. So, yeah, it's true. It's definitely true. Let's zero out all the way back to the beginning. Did you grow up in Chicago? What was your childhood like in your family? What captured your imagination as a young Kara? So I grew up in Evanston,
0: which is a suburb just north of Chicago. I am one of three kids. I'm the youngest in my family. I've got an older brother and an older sister. My brother's the oldest. My sister's the middle. My mom was a homemaker and my father was an attorney. And we grew up in a beautiful arts and crafts home that was built in the late 1800s. So architecture was kind of always a part of my world. I would say that my family was into the arts. I always tease that like other families would go on skiing vacations and my family would go antiquing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so at the time I hated it, um, when I was younger, (laughs) but I
0: definitely grew to love it more and more as I got a little bit older, but you know, we always listened to music and parents were always, you know, they'd go to the symphony and a lot of things were done around family meals. Um, we always ate dinner together. It was a really lovely childhood. Um, the way, you know, I think back to it, I think the best way to kind of describe, uh, the, the kids in the family and sort of how we all did our thing is in the basement. We all had sort of our own sections of the basement. So my brother being the oldest, and this was kind of more when he was a teenager, he had like the lounge station, and like played Atari and like all of his guy friends would come and hang out and that whole thing. And then my sister had this just big open space and she was very into dance. Um, so it was her dance studio. And then I had sort of the, the, uh, in the back, which was my art studio. I had everything under the sun. Um, I had a big kind of drawing table and places to pin things up, and piles of construction paper and scissors and crayons and markers and all that kind of stuff. I even had um, a play school potter's wheel back in the day. Um, I loved pottery and ceramics when I was a kid. Being creative was always really, um, I think, a part of me and part of who I was. So I think it it all started early.
1: Looking back on it, do you think the house that you grew up in had a big influence on you too? It was clearly chosen by your parents for its architectural significance. And so I'm sure they maintained it lovingly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's something I specifically look back on. My mom, she was a homemaker, but she should have been a designer. She has such a beautiful eye. And I think my dad has a a thing for history. So, you know, it being an old home with beautiful architecture, it had really unique features, leaded glass windows, beautiful sort of ceiling detail throughout, um, wood paneling. It was a really, really special house. And I remember, um, you know, when they first moved in there, they had no money. It kind of evolved over time. It wasn't like my mom hired a designer to to design the house for her. And the backyard was just all grass with a, you know, I think we had a little playhouse in the back, but as the years kind of evolved and they made it a true home and the backyard was beautiful and manicured and sculptural. They really put a lot into the landscaping and every room was really thoughtful nothing was really overdone. Um, It was just edited beautifully. Mm. elegantly. My mom's very, very elegant. And we had sort of these rituals about it too. Like when we got to a certain age, we got to redo our rooms, you know, we got to do them instead of my mom sort of guiding it. So that was like a big thing to us when we were growing up. Yeah, that was like going into high school, you kind of like made it to into the big world when you got to redesign your room
1: giving you permission to z- design your own room, that must have been kind of a pivotal, formative experience for you. Yes, I got to use my creativity.
0: <laughs> <And> <laughs> looking back, I realized that growing up, I had a pink room, It had pretty floral wallpaper and the whole thing. And um, when I was able to change my room, I did a white room with like black accents. And I look back and I realize I'm like, if there's nothing else I am, I am consistent because (laughs) my favorite palette seems to still be black and white in all its many forms. I don't know. I don't know why it is, but it is.
1: You're the youngest of three and you're clearly creative and you had a powerful experience designing your own space and then being able to live in it. But I'm wondering what adolescence was like for you. And as the youngest, did you have to sort of rebel to get noticed or (laughs) what were your outlets for your teenage angst other than your your black and white palette? Yes,
0: I definitely felt that I needed to rebel. Um, My brother and my sister were a year apart and they were like, they hung out together. They ended up at the same parties, all that kind of stuff. And I always felt like the outlier to the family. Now, of course, if you talk to my brother and sister, they would beg to differ. But since this is my interview and my perspective, I'll stick with my
1: story. Um,
0: But I was a little naughty, I'm not gonna lie. I probably, you know, was kissing boys too early. And back in the day, if you got a lunch, like you'd have your lunch, break. And if you got your schedule worked out perfectly, you could get two lunches in a row. And so I always made sure I did did that so I could like leave campus and go do things I shouldn't do and stuff like that. So I- Oh, you
1: truant. Yeah. I was
0: not (laughs) like my black and white schemes that I love so much. I am kind of black and white. Like I was a good student, but I also was, I also goofed off a lot, but I wasn't so anxious I would I would say I, I mean after
1: that when I went to
0: college I got like more into my hippie phase.
1: Well, let's hear about that because you went to New Orleans, right, and studied fine art at Tulane. Yeah, that was
0: so amazing. I look back and oh my god, what a great experience. My brother went to Georgetown, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go to Georgetown like Paul. And the rest of my family was like, yeah, no, you're not. <laughs> well, I was, I was a good student. I wasn't as good as my brother, so um, maybe I should have uh, not taken those two lunches. You know, I thought for sure I was going to get into Georgetown. I did not get into Georgetown, and thankfully, my. Brother brother's um, high school sweetheart was at Tulane at the time. And so she, this was back in the day when you actually got a paper application and filled it out and sent it in. So she brought me back an application. And I was like, Oh, God, I'm gonna have to fill this out because Julie asked me to. So I filled it out. And thank God, because I got in. (laughs) But Tulane was such an amazing experience. It felt like you were, you know, living in Europe. It was so different than anything I had known or understood. And um, in growing up, you know, outside of Chicago.
1: Oh, and New Orleans is so magical on so many Ugh. like levels and layers with all of its cultural influence and all yeah. of its sort of shadowy and nature overtaking things. And Yes, yeah. There were just so
0: many layers to it. And I found that I really got So into the city of New Orleans and like all of its beautiful layers. And I was, you know, very into the arts at that point. Um, really into music. Um, you know, I remember being in the art department working on something and one of my friends comes running in and she's like, Kara, 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 there's a second line down in the quarter. We gotta go. And our friend Henry was like this amazing dancer and he was like leading the second line basically.
1: What's the second line? It's
0: a, a funeral march, actually, is the way it started. But it it's kind of starts, like, slow – I hope I'm describing this right – but, like, slow and a little bit somber. And then by the end of the march, typically through, you know, the deceased's neighborhood, that a party starts to evolve, and people start dancing, and music's played down the street, and it's it's just oh, I mean everything what a beautiful world, a ritual yeah oh it was my so gosh cool. it's so cool so you know doing things like that on like a Thursday afternoon is not your norm for college and I remember I had a internship at the Contemporary Arts Center and one of my jobs was I got to go to like if there was a performance I got to go bring the checks to all the performers all the musicians so I got to meet some cool musicians and and I think that note about nature just I remember sitting there was a Huge tree outside of Audubon Park called the Tree of Life. And, you know, everybody who kind of went to Tulane knows where it is. But, you know, sitting under that, and it just, it was one of those huge trees that dripped all the way to the ground and pondered life. It was just such a beautiful experience. I'm so thankful for my time in New Orleans. I think it really formed who I am today, truthfully. I did a lot of antiquing down there too. I love to just like <laughs> dig through stores and spend money I didn't have and all that kind of stuff. I kind of still do that. <laughs>
1: So, it's so, <laughs> perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, did you ever consider staying in New Orleans or did you always know that was your a sort of formative Petri dish for you, but then you were going to launch out of it and go somewhere oh, else?
0: I still laugh because I was like, it was graduation. And I was like, Mom, Dad, I'm just going to stay in New Orleans. And my mom was like, no, you're not. And I was like, oh, okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think
0: she probably knew I was probably better off getting out of there. Although I do look back and I was definitely in more of like a hippie phase in my life. And I, I went more towards like the art avenue, but I was friends with so many architecture students. And if I was smarter back then, I would have studied architecture at that point because A, I didn't really realize that that's where my life was going to take me. And B, it was a five-year program. So I could have gotten an extra year down in <laughs> New Orleans, but I didn't. It was super cool. And I would have stayed there. I've, I've thought about you know having a house down there at some point in my life again, because it's just such a cool place to be.
1: You could have studied architecture, but I'm sure your fine art education informs your work today in ways that an architecture education wouldn't have, don't you think?
0: You know, I think what it did, what how it helped me is just being creative. Like when when I graduated, I studied ceramics. It was my it was my major, my focus. And mm-hmm. I got out and I and I knew I wasn't going to be an artist. You know, I just it wasn't going to be what I pursued as a career. But what it helped to teach me was just being resourceful, being creative, like, really, the sky's the limit, you know, what, what do you want to dream up? And how can you make that happen? So it was kind of nice to start there first, and then sort of move into architecture and interiors, which are so beautifully creative as well. It's just a different type of creativity. And it's a little bit it's more structured.
1: But I feel the same way about my education. I studied furniture design, and I learned a lot about building furniture. But what I really learned was how to build anything. Uh-huh. Like, huh You know, exactly. that's kind of exactly what you're saying. I learned how to take an idea from zero to something. And yeah. Yeah, like
0: how do you do that? Like how do you get there? And um, Right. What's yeah. that
1: path look like? And what are all my resources that I have? And how do I – Use them and manipulate them to get to an outcome that I'm shooting for,
0: mm-hmm. and even just perseverance. Because I, you know, I remember being like halfway through projects and being like, "Oh God, why did I do this? You yeah. Know? Yeah. I should have done this so differently." And you just had to finish it somehow. And I was like, you know, yeah. so thought you had to be. He taught you how to persevere a little bit,
1: <laughs> but yeah, definitely, and and also commitment, like yeah, oh yeah. man, had, and then you had to go sell it, you know, like and get critiqued. So <laughs> right, right, and you you had to save bad ideas sometimes. Yeah. Like, how do I turn this? How do I rescue this into something meaningful? <laughs>
0: oh my god, there is nothing worse than showing up when you know you bombed a project, and then like seeing everybody else's really cool projects, and you're just like, oh god, I don't want to go. <laughs>
1: And you're so exhausted at that point, too, because you've probably spent so many all-nighters. Your emotions are just right on the surface. Oh, God. Totally. So what were your first few steps in the professional world after college? Like, how did you find your professional self from your hippie ceramicist, artist self?
0: So I remember... I was sitting in my parents' living room. I was back from school. I had just graduated and I was like, oh my God, I just wish I could do it all over again. I would have done it so differently. And my parents started cracking up and one of their um, friends was over and he was in advertising. And so he's like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I have no idea. And he's like, what do you like to do? And I was like, I don't know. I like poking around in antique stores and, you know, like not really coming up with a really direct answer. And he's like, well, why don't you work as a photo stylist? And I was like, I don't know what that is. And so he explained to me what it was. um, And it sounded so cool. I was like, wait, how do I do this? So Um, he literally gave me like the name of a photo, maybe the name of like two photographers and I cold called them and was just like, Hey, I want to be a stylist. Then they gave me a name of, you know, a stylist to call. So it was just, I'm super scrappy if I'm nothing else. So, Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, just made a lot of phone calls and showed up when I wasn't wanted, (laughs) like (laughs) tried to help in any way I could. Um, and started my, you know, down the path of working as a stylist. And it was slow going. And um, I wanted to do more fashion. There's not really fashion in Chicago at the time, or really still, I was waiting tables on the side, I I think I had three jobs, I was working as a stylist, I was waiting tables on the weekends at this breakfast place, and then working at the double door at night so I could see bands play because I was like still 11 you know, mm-hmm. so into music and stuff like that. But, you know, so it was kind of a slow road to get working, you know, predominantly as just a stylist, which was great. You know, I did that for several years. And towards the end of it, I was doing a little bit more lifestyle and working with there's a really great photography firm here called the Hedrick Blessing. And, you know, they would shoot for House Beautiful and things like that. So I, you know, meandered my way onto some of those shoots. And, realized that it wasn't I didn't want to just style someone else's work. I wanted to create the interiors. So that was really my foray into finding the path to interior design. And I went back to school at night and was working again, probably still two jobs going to school full time at night and got my design degree.
1: Where did you go back to school? Are you in Chicago at this point? Yeah, I
0: was in Chicago. Um, At the time, there was a school called Harrington Institute of Interior Design. It was a private school. It was kind of just so cool. It was in the fine arts building here in Chicago. It had, you know, like there was still a man that operated the elevator and you'd go up and it was just, you'd hear music playing because it was different people's studios and and the school Mm -hmm. was there. And it was more of like a practical school. Like the Art Institute had an architecture program, but it was more theory and all that kind of stuff. And I just like, I got to get
1: out and get a job, you know,
0: like I got to support myself. So. Right. Sometimes
1: you just need to know like the nuts and bolts of how the machine works. And then yeah, you're like, like, okay, I, I already know how to express to myself. If, if yeah. you just teach me how to drive the car, I can get there.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that's really what Harrington was for me, at least. And so it served me well. I still laugh. Like I, I was like the worst student too. Like I hated, <laughs> <laughs> I hated, I can't remember what they would be called, but when you were like meant to to like work on your project in class instead of like being taught something. And so like, I would never come with any of my stuff to work on. I would just sort of sit in class until we were able to leave and everybody would be like, have you done any work? And I really hadn't because I would literally wait to the last minute And then I would probably like five days before it was due, I would turn into like a mad scientist and literally like stay up around the clock and design what I had to design and show up for class. And then it kind of just came out of me. It
1: was so... It was so fun. And I, I don't it's, know if I do it any differently today. <laughs> I can totally relate to that because I would see these other people that were just, I don't know, they seem diligent or they seem more inspired than me because they just yes. sort of progress incrementally on their projects and they'd be sort of ahead of schedule or on schedule. And I would sort of have these fits and starts where I'd, you know, bring in a sort of half baked idea and it just uh-huh. wouldn't be worth, it wouldn't be worth investing any more time in it. So then I'd go back. Back to zero, and then I'd do what you did, which is the last five days I'd have this like burst of inspiration, and then I'd you know stay up all night and pull it out, and frequently be pretty proud of it. You know, yeah, I was like, wait, I just nailed it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, why couldn't I have started on this earlier? Yeah, but what I came to realize is like that whole period is marinate. Like we needed to marinate. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm a marinator. That is for sure. Like it takes a long time to like bubble up and, you know, yeah. really kind of get what I want to come out. And I've gotten better about it over time. But, you know, I think when you're not so sure of yourself and you're not totally sure of your design or even kind of what you're doing and being able to pull back far enough to get that big picture, you know, I kind of would just like sit and sit simmer a little bit before I could get anything out of me.
1: <laughs> yeah, and all that that would be congealing until it was like, Oh God, time oh to God. give birth. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, is that uh, still your process? Because it's a painful one, I tell it's you. So
0: painful. <laughs> I have definitely, thankfully, gotten better. And it helps when you've got a team of talented people around you helping you with it. So, I mean, that is one thing that I have to say with my business that I'm super proud of today is that I think just because of like all that pain, you know, that the, the mm-hmm. go through, and we have a really great system in place. But like, has evolved obviously over the 15 years that I've had my company and like, how, how do we go through the process? So the whole office isn't staying up for five days before a presentation, you know, I was just seeing everybody burning out and it just, yeah. you know, you don't need to, it can be more uh, direct is what I'm learning in my, in my old age. <laughs>
1: Can you share with us that wisdom? You started your own studio, you say, like 15 years ago. So that Mm -hmm. was a major step. Yeah. Can you kind of paint the picture of starting your studio and then getting to the place where you are now, where you've got your your system kind of worked out, but you've also, you know, you've had some major projects under your belt and opened a few offices in New York and LA and Chicago, right?
0: Yeah. I got out of school and I had worked for more of a commercial firm my first year at school, literally as the receptionist. I just wanted to be in an office and understand what an office, a design office was about. And then my second year in school, I went and worked for just like a one-person firm in the suburbs who was more of like a decorator just doing residential. I wanted to see what that was about. In my third year, I kind of ended up working for a woman whose husband was a big architect in Chicago, and they were doing kind of a hybrid of the two and um, worked for her. And then when I graduated, for whatever reason, I mean, it it kind of was a second career for me, so I felt, you know, more of an adult. I was in my late 20s, and i always been entrepreneurial. Like, it's been a part of my being since I was younger, I'd lied about my age, so I could go work at Carmen's Pizza. Like I think (laughs) when I was 15, I wanted to make money. Um, I had a project that I needed some money for. So I like sold all my CDs in high school one year so I could make enough money to like put the down payment on this. I mean, I was just always doing something like that. And so I knew when I graduated from school that I wanted to start my own thing. At the time, the woman that I was working for uh, wanted to grow her firm, and um, we ended up partnering for about four and a half years, and which was great because she was older than I was, and you know they had a d- different set of client, like friends and clients, and that kind of stuff. It would have taken longer to kind of get to the point of getting there, so that was a good sort of tactical move, I think ultimately, we ended up ending the partnership, we just kind of have different had different points of view. And I, I started my own company in 2005. And honestly, I've, I've never taken a business class in my life. I've just kind of put my head down and persevered. Like I said before, it's like, kind of just you just keep getting up and Going to your office and hustling and, you know, I I love the business side of things as much as I love the creative side of things. So that's always been part of my drive. And I I do really Mm -hmm. think it like goes back to my parents. My dad is super driven. You know, we always said he'd like die at his desk because he's like a workaholic. (laughs) And, um, I think his company made him retire at 81, but (laughs) anyway, um, and then my mom, you know, had this really beautiful eye, So I kind of got a blend of the two of them, which is super cool, but it's not been easy. And I was a workaholic and work came first. Work was everything to me and kind of growing my firm and, you know, I guess now with the climate of the world right now, I can say I've been through two recessions and lived through the first one living through the second one right now. And there's been a lot of great clients along the way and there's been a lot of shitty clients along
1: the way you know so man um, and the shitty ones are no fun but you learn so much from them from, oh, and from the way God. that you deal with them you know like you learn a lot about yourself yes yeah you have to get up when
0: you're having a problem it's looking in the mirror and being like okay how am i can- contributing this or how do I want to grow from it and you know a lot of times like when I was younger with the firm I didn't I didn't know. And I didn't really have a mentor. And the other thing I never had was I never worked in a office, you know, like a big office. It was like, just me and my partner, we had a few people. And then when I went out on my own, you know, it was just, I grew, I think in the first year, I went out on my own, I grew from four to 14 employees. And I've been as many as 40. And as little as four over the years. So got to be really nimble.
1: Yeah. Did you, do you have a natural leadership skills or how did you find you were in terms of managing personalities and office culture and all of that?
0: Well, I think the way it starts, and I always say this during an interview is like, I don't lead with my ego and I don't expect anyone else to do that either. I think it's about being creative and being in a community where we're working You know, we want to work together and it should be fun. And so there's not that like competitive nature. I don't like being competitive just to be competitive. It doesn't do anything for me. You know, me either. It
1: wears me out. I don't like being competitive because I don't want to win if it means somebody else loses. Like, I literally want both of us to win. That's how I feel in my office. I'm like, let's like, we can all
0: do this, you know? Like, I like, I'll get down on the floor and cut up some paper, just like anybody else will, you know? Like, there's no prima donnas here, I guess. So maybe I'm a little bit more competitive than you are because I do stuff. I still like to win. But
1: (laughs) well, I mean, I like to win, but I like to. So let me just give you an example, because not that this podcast is about me but like i like to win a spelling bee where everybody self-eliminates and i'm the champion Uh but i uh don't like uh to win a tennis match where like me winning means trouncing somebody else and there's like a sad loser on the other side total (laughs) sense
0: i can completely agree with that for sure more like internal competitiveness
1: like yeah i want to i want to beat myself i want to beat my own record each time yeah
0: Totally, I'd, I always wanted that. Like, I always wanted to grow bigger, and every, you know, that's why I opened an office in New York. It was like so intriguing to me. I was like, I want to be in New York. Like, everybody needs to be in New York, and it was just like cool. But I've always been super grounded in the fact that I'm from Chicago. I'm connected to my family, so it wasn't like I was just going to close my office and start over and. New York. It was like I had built something, you know, really meaningful here in Chicago. So that's why I opened a second office in New York back in 2011, and um, you know, was getting jobs there. And you know, I look back and oh my god, some days were like total fucking shit shows, you know, where (laughs) it was like I didn't know I was supposed to get on a flight, and I was bouncing back and forth between Chicago and New York like two times a week, literally landing and going straight to the office, rolling into a presentation working really late going out for like two dinners in New York because that that seems like normal and typical there and then like
1: getting (laughs) up and doing it
0: again. From Um, two
1: lunches to two dinners. Yeah I mean it's
0: crazy. (laughs) I've just been running running running. So you know it's come with a lot of hard work and a lot of sweat and a lot of tears but I wouldn't change it for the world. It's been so awesome.
1: Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Well, is there a project in there that you can describe that sort of validated to yourself that you're on the right path and that you're doing what you're meant to be doing and that you felt th- that you still feel really proud of or that challenged you
0: in some way? I mean, there were so many, right? Like I think every time you're in the moment and you get sort of that next big project, it's like maybe a little bit bigger than the, than what you typically had before, or it's a different channel. Maybe it's more commercially focused versus residentially focused. I started, mm-hmm. you know, just doing residential I always love sort of those tentacles that could happen and, and where those could go. I think being able to, when I left my partnership, being able to look at our client list and, and see that we each had brought in almost similar jobs, you know, similar scale and all that kind of stuff. So I felt very confident being able to You know, go out on my own at that point. So that felt good. And then I think, you know, when I went to New York, I kind of needed something to go there for. I didn't want to just show up, you know? And so I had been kind of bopping back and forth and doing some projects. And ultimately, when I made my big move and opened my office in New York, I was awarded the Chelsea Hotel Project, which was amazing. It was like, the most amazing thing I've ever done, and the worst project I've ever been on. So, um, well, yeah. So, with
1: your your love of music and all of that, I can see why the Chelsea Hotel would be a dream for you. Yeah, totally. But then, also, I'm sure our listeners are are aware of the renown of the Chelsea Hotel and its landmark status for being a hub of creativity and bohemia and punk rock and literary genius. And it's just, you know, seeped into the walls for years and years and years. But that also, you know, the renovations of that hotel were problematic and rife with controversy. And there was a lot of resistance to that. And so I I think that project, like you got a chance to design the interiors, but then it never went forward. Do I have that right? Actually, I was hired, I worked under I was kind of hired twice, so I worked on the project for a
0: total of five years. And Ugh. oh my gosh, it's crazy! And so, and we only got to DD, we only got to design development. But
1: um, but the wow. first, so
0: we were hired um, under one kind of group of developers, and it was a pretty tumultuous situation. And they were trying to just you know get a company off the ground, and it was nuts. And and so. And we were, me and my whole team were so passionate that it was so emotional to us and just Mm. like doing the research and making sure it was like perfect. And there was a lot of pressure for it to be, you know, it is infamous and famous and like it needed to be just right. And I wasn't a New Yorker. So that was like pressure too. And
1: yeah, I mean you would have to really pay tribute and take its history into account and not in any way pave over it. That must have been a really god, creatively oh, amazing so project, but so. but also just wow, so so sensitive. You'd have to be so sensitive.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because now that I look back, I'm glad so like that development group split mm-hmm. up and then Um, one of the developers moved on with like a new set of developers and I got the job back. And the second time around, it was so much better than the first. So I'm so happy that that actually (laughs) happened. So um, you don't always get that chance. And no, you you got got a do over already. (laughs) I got a do over, which was amazing. And it was so much more poignant. And I had grown up and a little bit and had an amazing team. And I think we we really tried to approach it in a very thoughtful way that didn't feel trendy or, you know, like a way that you, you know, think of it. Or exploitative. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah like the things that i remember was walking through the building and everybody had kind of like decorated the outside of their doors and it was like it was almost like their personalities were spilling out you know they couldn't mm-hmm. everybody was so creative and wanted to express themselves so it was just to me it was just sort of meant to be like a blank slate canvas and just edited approach to it but then that development team split up and that whole team kind of got kicked off the project so i got kicked off the project and It was devastating. I thought my Uh, life was over. And I still remember being fired from the first group. I think I got like a certified letter or something like that on Thanksgiving Day, firing me. (laughs) It's like,
1: oh, man, mean
0: spirited. (laughs) like, Like, you couldn't have just waited a day like, come on. So, you know, and I remember talking to a friend of mine who is, you know, had lived in New York, and she was an artist and the whole thing. And I was like, crying and the whole thing and she's like, Oh Kara, everybody has a bumpy landing when they get to New York. And I was like, they do? Cause I'm really Aww. having
1: a bumpy landing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it
0: was so bad. <laughs> but you know, it was it I still look back on it. It's one of my favorite projects just because it really pushed me um, creatively and I loved the research aspect of it so much and oh, being yeah. in New York and meeting all the fun, kooky people that lived in the building still. So it was it was a really meaningful time in my
1: career oh and the historical sure. significance and oh, and I'm sure oh, with all those development it. groups like the politics of everything you you probably learned a lot too probably wasn't fun but oh my um... god
0: yes i mean i've <laughs> never done anything like that before and then trying to sell it to you know bankers and that kind of stuff to get funding and you know you were <sighs> kind of always performing and it was a crazy amazing total shit show and i loved every minute of it <laughs> <laughs>
1: As somebody who's been called a punk rock classicist, um, <laughs> everything about that project sort of fits in, like the chaos and the shit show. Is like, yeah, mm-hmm. I know how to, I know how to work here. Like, <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, I felt right at home. I was like, this is cool, I get it, I get it. Although now I'm, I, I, there's no way I, I would be way too tired to keep up with that pace nowadays. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> okay, so let's let's cut to today. You've got interior design studios in Chicago, New York, and L.A.
0: New York's a little bit more of like a satellite. So it's really Chicago and LA right now.
1: And you're doing residential and commercial. And you've also launched a line of stylish home essentials under the brand name Kept. So what compelled you to get into the product business? And how does that fit into your future?
0: Well, so that ties back
1: to my childhood, truthfully.
0: And Part of my rose-colored glasses perspective on my childhood, and turns out my brothers as well, because my brother and I are working on this product uh, line together. We just had a really beautiful home, and it was well kept, and everything had a place. And my mom took care of things, and our, you know, utility closet was very tidy and orderly. And even the products that we use, like my mom had this blue dustpan that we had literally like my entire life. You know, like just. You bought once, you bought well, you maintained your home, you maintained the things in it. And so it was just instilled on us at a a young age. And so my brother ended up working in product design and development. And so he was working for more like big box labels, like designing products that would end up being sold at Target and Bed Bed, Bath & Beyond and, and places like that and Container Store. And I had always been intrigued about starting this to me, it's really like the back of house items, like nothing decorative. I don't want to do bedding. I don't want to do furniture. It's not meant to be that. It's really just the utilitarian products that you know you need to maintain your home. So it's sort of like container store product means a hardware store meets like the an elevated version of everything you know, like a restoration hardware in a way.
1: So we're talking brooms and dust pans and uh-huh. vessels for soap and yeah, we did and, like, like hooks own. and and storage, right? Storage and brooms and we did
0: our own kind of scent with our hand soap and dish soap and scented vinegar and all that kind of stuff. We've got you know some kitchen stuff aprons and tea towels. We're coming out with a whole bunch of new products um, over the next, I'd say three to four months, you know, things like beautiful tape measures and um, mm. yeah, things that like you, you are know, speaking my to, language. Right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, what else are we doing? And, and part of it is we are designing and manufacturing mm-hmm. products. So like one of the pieces that we designed and had manufactured was sort of this tray that can sit out at your sink that houses um, the hand soap and the dish soap and a sponge and a a dish brush in a very nice, elegant way. If it's got to be out, you know, it should be beautiful. I think that's the thing too is, oh, we're coming out with like a whole pantry system. And I love keeping decanting things into glass jars. And how do you organize that? So we're doing that kind of in the next layer of product, so it's been super fun. It's harder too. Like I, I think I needed something that I had never done before. I needed a new challenge, and this is definitely it. I've I haven't really, you know, I don't know the manufacturing world the way my brother does. I mean, it yeah.
1: sounds like the entrepreneur in you who is always kind of doing these kinds of projects, selling your CDs to do something. Um, <laughs> Yeah. That, that girl is still very much alive in this, in this project. How is it working with your brother? Is it?
0: Cool. Yeah, he's super smart. And he does the things that like, it's so funny. It's been funny to kind of see, we've got a couple other people working with us. And so it's funny to see their reaction on how Paul and I Paul is my brother and how we Mm -hmm. work together. And like we do Paul loves a spreadsheet, you know, and it's all linear (laughs) and it's like Excel. And I'm like, I just I can't even take this information in unless it looks beautiful on the page. And then I like, make them put pictures on it and like rearrange everything. So it's almost like we have to have two documents. going (laughs) One that I can actually absorb because I can't unless it's visually pleasing. And then one that's like, you know, just down and dirty. Like my brother likes to do it. So it's been funny to see that kind of um, perspective and, you know, he's as passionate about it as I am, which is really cool. I appreciate having someone that's as invested as I am in the process and the project and the progress of the company. I've always just, You know, after my partnership, I kind of left, wasn't the best split. And I've just sort of been, you know, I have an amazing team, but, you know, the investment and sort of sticking your neck out there, I've just been doing it on my own. So it's been a little Mm -hmm. scary at times. So it's nice to have someone that's, you know, your brother, your big brother, that's like,
1: you know, working with you. He also grew up in the same house with the perfectly ordered pantry and utility closet. So. Oh, my God, totally. So he does get that, and which yeah. I
0: love. And it was so funny, though, because when we were, like, working on branding, the branding company was like, hey, can you guys, like, pull pictures of your house and show us these things? And so Paul and I, like, dug through photographs, and we were like, huh,
1: well, maybe it wasn't as great as we were <laughs> Isn't that funny? You both idealized it in the same way. (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's
0: ridiculous. But I mean, I think it's a true testament to our parents and, um, you know, just raising good kids who are determined. And I think having a I do think home has meant some I think that probably ultimately is it is that home has they created this wonderful sense of home. And it obviously has meant something to both my brother and I, and I think that's why we want to help others with that idea.
1: I was just having this conversation with somebody else right before you and I are talking about how if you surround yourself with objects that don't mean anything, then your existence is less meaningful. It's not true. Objects are vessels of meaning, and if you surround yourself with objects that you love or that have meaning to you or that represent something, then your whole life is richer. But you don't need like a bunch of meaningless objects to just dilute and confuse your headspace.
0: That's like my biggest thing. And even down to growing the company and what the website looked like, I'm like, it just needs to be really simple. And I don't want to have... 40 different hanger types that you choose from. I think that like, I think that's what's happened with shopping. Now we like, we literally physically can't go into stores at the moment, but like just the whole Amazoning of the world. It's like you go on Amazon and there's a thousand different hanger types, but who's the authority? Like who's telling you what that, what's the best hanger out there and who's got time to like weed through all of that, you know? So to me, it was like, we want to do the research. We want to like, figure it out for you so that when you come to cap, you know, you're getting stellar product. And it's really, you know, it's more along the price point of container store. So it's not super excessive, except, okay, fine. The $300 (laughs) broom, which I, sorry, I just love it. So I put it on there and we're getting a lot of flack for it. People are like, what does it sweep for you? But I will say I've never swept so much in my entire life.
1: <laughs> well, so okay, so I have not swept with your three hundred dollar broom, but I um, will say this about brooms: is a cheaply or ineffective broom is just worthless, and it's worth zero, even yeah. if you spend twenty bucks on it. Yeah, and a well-made broom that really sweeps well can sometimes be an object of. I mean, they're. The craftsmanship be on a good yeah. broom is really beautiful. But it's also something, if it sweeps well, it'll last you your whole life. Like, literally. And generations.
0: Yeah. No, literally. We had the same broom my entire life growing up. And I felt like, you know, beautiful wood handle that ages over time. Like All those things are super important in how we choose product or how we'll choose to design product. And, you know, I, I really believe in kind of the whole buy once, buy well theory. I was actually thinking about my apartment the other day and I was like looking around, I'm like, man, this place is held up. And, and I totally spent too much money when I did it 12 years ago. And I, you know, was just starting my company. I had no money and, but I, you know, put in the Christopher Peacock kitchen and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't afford this, (laughs) but I'm going to do it anyway. And it still looks damn good. I'm like, so I think, you know, sometimes you just Especially architecturally, too, you know, or you know, just all the things that kind of I don't know, that make things I think holding up and caring for things is so important is so important. yeah,
1: well, I could see too, that if you with regard to kept, I mean, those are the types of home essentials that you they're not disposable. Like you move with you bring them with you. If you move, right. you sort of, it's that blue dustpan that you had your whole childhood.
0: Yeah, which, you know, and- now I wouldn't do blue because God forbid,
1: but. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're black and white anyway. We know. Yeah, we know totally
0: you. neutral, just a neutral color. But um, but yeah.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, let, let me get a sense of your, well, your creative process, we kind of know is about marinating until there's like <laughs> a, a furious burst at the end, but we've gotten We've gotten that sort of leveled out with a good team. But within you internally, how do you know when you're about ready to pop? Like, how do you know when the idea is really the one you want to run with?
0: I think when I'm working on an interiors project, for me, you got to think about where the project is. You know, what does that mean? What's the lighting like? What's the geographic nature of this The area that you're working in. I really start with architecture. I mean, the architecture of a space is so key and it has to, we do interior architecture as well as design. So, um, and probably doing more and more projects where we're doing interior architecture all the way through versus just design and decorating. So really getting like a space laid out, you know, really good space planning. You know, I know everybody's like, Oh, I think of like, there's a story and all that kind of stuff. And I just, I don't do that. I always am like, should I? (laughs) (laughs) Why (laughs) am I the only one that doesn't do that? Like I can create a story if I'm doing a commercial project, but typically it's more about, you know, I started architecture. I think of mood. I think of how I want to feel somewhere. I think of sort of, you know, what you could take as a reference I always look at fashion I like to look at fashion sometimes not just for fashion but just to look like in the background of where they might have shot something you know like some beautiful yeah house like that so I love doing that um and then I really just start to I pull a lot of imagery um I think editing imagery too because you could like hone in on some weird detail within you know um within a small little piece. Sometimes it's just a material that might get me going or a rug. I definitely have designed rooms around rugs. My, one of my favorite stories ever is that mm-hmm. uh, this client, she was coming in from from Dubai and she showed up early or something like that, I think. And so I hadn't prepared anything. She was like, I'll be there like Tuesday and it was like Friday or something, you know, and uh, I was like, shit. And so I was in my office alone late at night and I had gotten this book on Alexander McQueen and it was all these beautiful gowns that he had designed. And I was like, I'm going to design a room based on every one of these, you know, on on a gown. And so I started pulling palettes based on each of the gowns and then it turned into, it did turn into a story. So there you go. But it was one of my like favorite pushing it to the last minute and being able to come up with something that actually worked. So that was one of my funny um, (laughs) stories about being a designer. Let's see in terms of other process. So then I really love working through space plans and making like you've got to think three-dimensionally even though you're, you know, working two-dimensionally and how does that room feel?
1: I'm totally relating to this because I know a lot of people who can sort of come up with a style inspiration and they already know like what furniture they want. And I'm like, well, where's it going to go though? Because how do you know how the space is going to flow? And if it doesn't flow and if it blocks traffic, then it doesn't feel right in there. And then you got to start all over. And part of me is like mad because I'm like hung up on the space planning part of it, you know, and they're already working with the beauty details. And I'm, I just feel like something must be wrong with my process, but but then I'm like, no, because it feels wrong in here. Feels yeah. wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I am I start with space planning for sure, for sure, for sure. I want things to like, yeah, there's like a certain um, harmony that happens when you get beautifully laid out architecture and your layout like relates to the architecture. And then, you know, the sight lines, I always kind of like take my paper and turn it around so that I'm looking, you know, sometimes you can just look at the paper and you, you assume like you and you stay with the page, you know, whatever with north facing up. But then if you turn mm-hmm. it around and you take different views of the space, it things start to feel different. So and now I've got all these amazing like young people who can do 3D modeling in like literally two seconds. So I don't even have to do that at this point.
1: <laughs> That's handy. That yeah, is handy. But this is starting to make sense because there's something about so your projects are known for a kind of edgy sophistication and a glamorous and gritty mix of materiality refinement and irreverence but the way that those things can come together without it feeling like chaos with it still feeling like it has a beautiful poetry to it and that it's very organic to its sense of place this all really like the fact that you do this space planning first because the details are so well placed Mm -hmm. because because you're already thinking about how the space feels in every dimension. This is really interesting. Would you call that your your superpower? Or is there something else that you think you would describe as your superpower?
0: I mean, the things that like, get me going like that, like I, you know, my, I can feel my blood rushing a little bit faster is like getting a really beautiful layout for sure. I love sourcing and finding new sources and like, which is like so impossible these days because everything's just saturated. It's like kind of taking the fun out of the search a little bit. Mm, but um,
1: Yeah, the antiquer in you is like Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Frustrated. I love that. And you're like, oh my God,
0: I finally found it, you know, the perfect piece or whatever. I also really love now that I've got sort of a big team or bigger team than I've really ever had and super talented people. I love sort of this editing process that I do now and and letting people... Be creative and, and helping guide them. You know, I don't know if I ever really had anybody that did that for me necessarily. It was, so it's, I want to do that for other people. So that's been kind of really fun for me lately, as I get older with my design.
1: Yeah, I can see that that's sort of a, a mentoring kind of side to it, right? And you also get the opportunity to see how other people's creativity and expression can marry with yours in a yeah. way.
0: I'm a firm believer that like, especially when you're doing residential, it's, it's not my home, right? So I have to really tune into a client, I want to deliver what they want, you know, and even if they don't know what they want, I want to kind of help dig that out of them and get some perspective so that I can really create a home that is their dream, not mine, you know, so, Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's why working collaboratively with my team instead of it just being me, it makes it a richer project. You know, I know not everybody kind of works that way, but I like to.
1: Well, speaking of, you know, knowing what you want and clients not always knowing what they want. I mean, this is sort of a segue into your personal life. We're just in an amazing time right now. And by amazing, I don't necessarily mean good. I just mean historically significant in that we're in a full on reckoning Globally, Mm -hmm. locally, socially, economically, personally and spiritually with the pandemic and racial injustice and financial upheaval for many people. How is this affecting you or how have you been working with yourself through this turbulent time and what has been clarified for you in terms of personal meaning and purpose? Yeah, it's been such a crazy time.
0: I've had a lot, like most people in the world have had a lot happening in this period. And, you know, it started with, we had been awarded, you know, a huge project, commercial project, and we were let go from the project right at the beginning of the pandemic. And we had, the whole team had given like their lives to it, you know, and and it's Mm. so heartbreaking when, um, when the client doesn't see or appreciate that. (laughs) Um, So it was that one, it started off with, you know, a professional heartbreak and that, you know, that I think kind of goes back to that Chelsea story a little bit. It's like just pouring so much of your personal emotion into a project that ultimately like you don't have a hundred percent control over, you know? So, you know, you're really just kind of raw and vulnerable. And I don't know that kind of the money guys, can understand that ever. And I think I finally got that theory (laughs) with this last (laughs) one. It's been hard with the firm, because we've had to furlough people at times. And, you know, we got our PPP loan, which was stressful. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so I feel very responsible. I, you know, I feel very much like we're a family here. And um, I don't want to, I don't want to let anybody down. And so it's, it's, very personal responsibility that I take on having a having a company of my own and employing people who have families and all that kind of stuff. So that's been really tough. During all of this, both of my parents have been incredibly sick and in the hospital, not with COVID, but nearly lost both of them. So it's been a crazy time. And then I think ultimately, that, you know, I was a workaholic. And I ended up having a daughter on my own at 46, you know, fought really hard to get her and then went right back to work, working really hard. And I think the pandemic has shown me that ultimately I want to spend more time with her, you know, like you don't get that time back. And it's been so nice not traveling (laughs) and being there every night to put her to bed. Um, So, you know, it just made me realize like, Yeah, family is just, at least to me, so important. And I need to and want to be more present. So you know, when the world does come back, because I feel like we're going to get things straightened out, ultimately, I got to make I got to remember, you know, that what I feel now, and I need to carry that through and make sure that I'm there for my family. So that was my biggest learning lesson that doesn't always have to be all work all the time, all emotions towards it. (laughs) You need to kind of divvy it up for other things too.
1: That's a powerful one. I've I've had a a few friends also revel in the not being able to travel because their work just Uh demands so much travel from them. And I think what's One of the silver linings of this, and I hope this is true for you, is that you'll be able to, with this time where you're not able to travel and you're able to set new rhythms and Mm -hmm. habits and rituals with your daughter, those will also have enough time to sort of grow and be reinforced, like both in your Mm -hmm. neural pathways and in your daily rhythms in such a way that you won't have to remember you just will not go back to workaholism because you'll have a new way of being that. I mean, I think, okay, I'm going to have to pay
0: you my therapy um, <laughs> <money> now <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for the week because that's so true. You know, I was just in the workaholic pattern and then I had her and it just like, I just went back to it because that's what was normal and natural. And now she is normal and natural. And yeah, that will be embedded and harder to move away from. So definitely, I I agree with that 100%.
1: Cut to like 20 years from now. What what Mm -hmm. do you hope for yourself and for your daughter, like is different about the world?
0: Well, I definitely hope that we get to a point where, you know, there is the equality that, you know, I think our, our country and the world is finally putting its foot down and, and, trying to make the right steps like that would be so wonderful to see a world that embraced that I think you know in 20 years I hope my I hope my daughter should be 23 so she won't want to hang out with me
1: at that point (laughs) (laughs) she's gonna be in the punk rock clubs just like you were (laughs) on
0: tables like I'm afraid
1: of
0: (laughs) but uh, Um, yeah, I hope she will let me spend as much time as I possibly can with her. And honestly, I know this sounds bad to say, but I hope I'm not working. I hope I'm retired and living on, you know, some island and maybe like painting.
1: (laughs) Why does that sound bad to say? I think we've been conditioned to think that we're supposed to just give our life to to toil, and yeah. I don't think that that's necessarily the way we create a beautiful, happy society. I think that's yeah. the way we create burnt-out individuals. Now, clearly, you said painting, so like your your creativity goes on, but yes. it sounds to me like like building an empire isn't necessarily yeah. where you need this to go. It, no, I hope yeah. either that
0: empire was has been built, or mm-hmm. you know, I'm happy. Like or it hasn't, you know. <laughs> Either way, it's going to be okay. You know, I have nothing to complain about. My life is wonderful. I'm proud of myself. I'm adore my family and my friends, and I hope all of that continues on. And I hope our world, you know, is more inclusive and a little bit more stable, and and all of that. But I'm an optimist. I know we will swing back, and you know, things will be stronger and Hopefully, we'll all be a little bit wiser and, and that good stuff. But I nev- I've never had a game plan, so I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow, lo- let alone 20 years from now.
1: <laughs> here, here.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just kind of fly by the seat of my pants and hope it works out. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, but then that's all right. <laughs> yeah, <I'm good. laughs> it's all good. <laughs> yeah. So do you have a new project that we can take a look at or one that's in the pipeline that will be ready soon that we should stay tuned for? Well, I'm super excited because
0: I have a collection coming out with CB2, which is such a cool, exciting endeavor. I'm so honored to have been asked to collaborate with the team at at CB2. It's been such an amazing experience. And We do custom furniture um, all the time for clients, but to be able to work at that scale and just with their resources and um, their knowledge about manufacturing, it's been so cool. So that's kind of my most exciting thing that's happening in the near future. And I I can't wait till it comes out.
1: That's furniture. Is it housewares as well? or furniture. So furniture and some accessories. Very exciting. Yeah, super cool. Well, thank you for sharing your story and your wisdom and your trials and tribulations and your spirit. You have, you're you're fun. You're really fun. Thanks. Thanks.
0: It was so nice. Thanks for including me.
1: Hey, thanks for listening. To see images of Kara's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go to cleverpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you would please do us a favor and rate and review, it really does help other people find us. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Laura Jaramillo, and music by L1011.